Hello and welcome. You're listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. Hello and welcome to episode 379 of Writers Aloud. In this episode, in the first part of a two-part interview, Lydia Sison speaks with Catherine O'Flynn about childhood freedom in Botswana, how critical theory nearly destroyed her writing career, history as vicarious travel, and her obsessive accuracy when it comes to historical and geographical details. Hello, I'm Catherine O'Flynn, and today I'm talking to Lydia Sison. Lydia writes fiction and non-fiction on historical themes for readers of all ages, and is also a ghostwriter. Following English degrees at Oxford and Southampton Universities, and an early career as a BBC World Service radio producer, Lydia returned to academia to complete a PhD at Birkbeck University of London about Timbuktu in the European imagination. This led circuitously to her first published book, a biography of a notorious Enlightenment medical entrepreneur and fertility guru. Doctor of Love, Dr James Graham and His Celestial Bed, came out in 2008 and was reviewed in publications ranging from the Daily Record to the Journal of Medical History. Her three critically acclaimed young adult novels explore aspects of history neglected by the school curriculum. The Spanish Civil War, A World Between Us, published 2012, the 1871 Paris Commune, Liberty's Fire, published 2015, and Pacifism and Polish Pilots in the Battle of Britain, That Burning Summer, published 2013. Lydia's debut adult novel, Mr Peacock's Possessions, set on a tiny Pacific island in the late 19th century, is also inspired by true events, and it was a Times and a Sunday Times Book of the Year in 2018. Lydia was brought up in London and Botswana, and now lives in Camberwell with her partner and varying numbers of their four children. I spoke to Lydia at her home in Camberwell. Hello, Lydia. Hello, Catherine. Um, so I thought I'd start back at your earliest uh, ambitions as a writer. I think I've uh, listened to a podcast you did where you mentioned that you wanted to be a writer at an early age. And I think you used to make your own books, stitching the covers and uh, so on. And so I just wondered if you could tell me a bit about your earliest memories of writing, what drew you to it, and what were the books about? And most importantly, do you still have any? Well, do you know, I, I just looked on my shelf before you came and, and there was... There was a little file because I did have a big sort out about a year ago, one of my lockdown sort outs, after a long, long time of not sorting things. And I saw a little thing that said early stuff, but sadly, none of those little books were in there, so I, I, I don't know where they are now. I feel like in a way, thinking about how, maybe I had a really old fashioned early childhood because I grew up in Botswana. And, you know, I didn't have a telly, there was sure. no such thing. As, and so it really was like reading and writing and wandering around with your friends and just sort of stuff. We had such a lot of freedom. Mm. And I think I just naturally went from, maybe the word, I don't know, I just, I, I honestly don't know <laughs> when I think about it. Why did I think that making my own books was a good idea? But I always did like making them actually into little books. I really liked drawing. I liked sewing. I liked making things. Right. So it, it sort of, it, it was a kind of, came from, and then I had a little sister who was six years younger than me. And so I, I think some of those early books 
I made for her. Very right. derivative. And I, the one, one that I can remember, for example, was about Wellington the Dragon. And that was fully illustrated in colour. And that was very much inspired by Rosemary Manning's books about our dragon and green smoke and so on. I see. So maybe the reason they don't survive is there were sort of copyright issues you were worried about. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's more just the chaos of life than mm. everything else. <laughs> and so in Botswana, so you didn't have TV, because I was going to ask you about that, whether, whether television was a big influence on you, but obviously not. But were, were you a keen reader when you were little? What sort of books were you, were you enjoying when you were young? I was really lucky because I, I, I really grew up in that absolute golden age of children's literature from the kind of 60s, 70s, and Puffin was a big thing in my life, so I was a member of the Puffin Club, <laughs> and book tokens were a big thing, so we always got book tokens for all our presents from, right. from family, and then we'd have these expeditions and spend hours and hours choosing, you know, you'd read half a book before you'd commit yourself to the book token. <laughs> But also I think that coming back to London in the 70s, strange grey London in the middle of the three-day week when the electricity seemed to fail all the time, you had to get the hurricane lamps out and yeah. um, and all the freedom that we'd known growing up when you could just wander safely anywhere, completely suddenly removed. Then books became a bit of a, an escape and a protection, certainly for me and my brother, who's just a tiny bit older than me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think that was I think it was a lot of escapism. So, I mean, we read a lot of the same kind of books. So probably quite a lot of the usual suspects. But then it was it was only when I became a writer and started meeting other children's writers of my generation and older that I suddenly discovered people who knew all the same childhood characters that that okay. I knew. And so there was the there were the ones that were being written then, like Joan Aiken and Nell Stratfield, and lots of women writers, I yeah. have to say. Yeah. Um, lots of kind of family ones. Some American, like Elizabeth Enright, I really mm. liked. And, and my children have got, then gone on to read this. There's one author who I absolutely loved, who it baffles me that she's out of print, who's called Geraldine Simons. I'm always banging the drum for her. Okay. So she wrote brilliant and they were historical in a sense, but they didn't feel like it to me. I never felt like I was reading historical fiction. I like time slip books a lot. But I also read pony books. <laughs> I read ballet books. I read lots of books that my mother and aunt and uncle had had. So for things I found at my grandparents' house. So there was this whole school series called Dimsey. <laughs> Dimsey. <laughs> Dimsey Maitland. Bit of Angela Brazil. Ballet books by Lorna Hill. And then there were other books which only now I'm discovering a kind of had a bit of a sort of political thing going on as well. So people like Inesbit, who we were all very devoted to, Arthur Ransom, yeah, Andrew Lang's fairy stories. And then I realised only much later that these were actually people that my great grandparents had known. Okay, <laughs> well that's really interesting. So when you came back to England, it was this kind of slightly bleak return were you still writing then were you still enjoying sort of writing your own stories or or not so much yes no absolutely I think it kind of probably took off even more then because I was I mean I was only six when I came back so right probably more of the yes you know, yeah they probably got yeah. more sophisticated yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. The stitching got better sure. kind of and I and I was I was lucky with teachers I always think that so many I think so many writers have certain teachers that have really encouraged them 
and who just liked their stories. And I think we had a lot of freedom, which I don't think children have much at school now. I mean, it's really changed even between my older children and my younger children. How confined they are in their imaginations and how everything is themed and... Um, I mean, I won't go on about fronted adverbials right now. Uh, <laughs> and wow words. And wow words and so on. But I, I, I really do think that I, you know, I could just write a lot, whatever I wanted to write, and wrote at great length to some very long-suffering and kind, encouraging teachers who sometimes gave me extra books to write stories in and that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, and so then after school you went on to study English at university. I mean, I'm assuming because you enjoyed reading so much and writing. I mean, did that then, did that impact on your desire to be a writer? You know, did that sort of, because often people go and study English literature and think, oh God, I don't want to be a writer anymore. It completely puts them off. How, how did that work with you? It had exactly that effect <laughs> on me. Um, it was partly, I think, to do with the time that I was studying English. So it was the, the mid-80s and critical theory was the big thing. Mm. And I loved critical theory, but it was all death of the author. It was all, it was very unhistorical, interestingly. And although women's writing was becoming a thing, and so I, was, I did do that, I did do that. I did. <laughs> I did read more women than I might have been able to read at university yeah. even a few years earlier, is what I'm saying. Yeah. I think it did really make me think I'm just never going to be good enough. And if I'm not going to be as great as these people, what is the point? And I couldn't really see how you became a writer almost. And I stopped writing, which was really stupid. So I probably stopped writing at exactly the point that I went to university I stopped drawing as well I stopped you know it became a very uncreative time of my life um, in lots of ways and although I I I did use writing in my work always because I became a radio producer and that's a job that also involves storytelling and narrative because I was I ended up in in features and arts I really only started writing when I was almost sort of forced into a corner and it was like, what else could I do? So, how, well, how did that come about then? So you, after university, you went into radio. And then, so how did you come back to writing? What was this corner that you'd found yourself in? Parenting, really. Ah, <laughs> yes, that corner. And I'd also been ill, so I'd had ME, which is really very much like long COVID. I'd had a terrible flu that I just didn't recover from Mm. and I didn't know how I would be after I had my first child there were lots of big changes at the BBC so I took redundancy I tried to be freelance for a bit and then I thought the only way that I could get paid to to write was to do a PhD right I don't know why I thought that was good with two small children (laughs) but it seemed like a good idea at the time and I think it was because it really you know that actually gave me three years of kind of focus learning how to research and how to turn that into a book effectively I mean it you know it actually remains unpublished for various reasons mostly because I then had two more children and I couldn't go to Timbuktu which was the subject of my oh I see my thesis that's interesting isn't it you're saying you mentioned earlier that you had no idea how you actually became a writer, and then even as an adult, it was like, well, maybe you do a PhD. That's a way, you know. It's interesting. It's so opaque, isn't it? It's certainly, I think now maybe it's, I don't know. Maybe there's, it's it's more obvious that people can become writers, and you do a creative writing course or something, and then maybe you get published. But yeah, certainly, I think for 
people more our age, it was just this, I have no idea how you would make that step to be a writer. No, and the idea of going on a writing course just felt just absolutely far too indulgent to mm. me. I, f- I felt like there was no, you know, if I was going to write, it had to be in a kind of Johnson sort of way. You know, I had to write in a way that would be earning money, not costing money. Right. <laughs> Okay, well, maybe that's because I was going to go and say that, you know, one of the distinguishing features of, of your writing is, is this, you know, diversity. So the, from your first book, which was Doctor of Love, James Graham and His Celestial Bed, which was a work of historical nonfiction. And then you moved to fiction and wrote three historical young adult novels. And then you moved from young adult to write Mr Peacock's Possessions, which was this highly acclaimed adult novel. And so before I, I spent the diversity, the, the, the sort of the constant that runs through all those is they're all historical. So what, what, where did that come from, that love of history? Was that partly this idea that you couldn't just write, it had to be, have some sort of, I don't know, some other extra element to it? to make. What, what, where, where did the love of history come from? Well, I think it was because I really missed out on, on history as a child. I think I was taught history at school in exactly the way that um, Gove would like you to learn, <laughs> which is sort of starting at the beginning and then moving resolutely through. But it meant that in sort of the early years of secondary school, we spent so long on the Stone Age and the Bronze Age and cavemen, and that's probably not the right order, I'd put it anyway. <laughs> um, and it meant that actually, by the time I got to O levels, because I was one of the last few years to do O levels, we had to do this ludicrous jump from the Tudors to 1917. And so I had this enormous empty period of history right and in fact I remember I I took a year off between school and university I went back to Botswana and and taught there and took posted out to myself every man copies of all the books that I would need to read for my English degree in tiny print which I then read by candlelight over the course of a year (laughs) to save on postage I'm guessing Oh, was the tiny print. That was. Oh, yes, that was. That was because actually, in um, the the Everyman edition, the old Everyman editions oh. were on terribly thin paper yes. with in tiny print and much actually even lighter than a paperback. In fact, I see. But I, I bought all these books in a secondhand bookshop in my grandmother's town. It's actually quite a famous bookshop, now, the Petersfield Bookshop, and they were posted out surface mail. And after I'd been there for a couple of months, these boxes arrived, I see. which was very exciting. <laughs> so um, you were you found yourself teaching in Botswana. And and you'd also been made aware of this massive gap in your educational oh, yes. knowledge. So, yeah. so, so, so there I was in Botswana reading, you know, the the, the, the works mm-hmm. of George Eliot and realising when I got to Felix Holt that I just had no idea what the Reform Bill was. Right. And, and I actually got an, a friend who had done A-level history to post me her book on, you know, her textbook on the Reform Bill so I could <laughs> understand what on earth was going on in this in this novel. <laughs> and so I suppose that was the very, very, very beginning. But then when I went to university, the, the history was just yeah. not really a thing in English. It was all about... You know, we were brilliant at doing what we call practical... It was called practical criticism. And, you know, you could take a poem and you could analyse it, (laughs) but without knowing anything about it at all, or anything about the sort of cultural production Mm. and the history of it. Or, you know, there was this whole kind of biographical fallacy stuff. And so it was just a completely different way of, of looking at literature. And by the time I came back to do my PhD, the historical turn had happened. And so my PhD was very historical. 
I see. And that's probably what what got me going. And then I ended up with children who were very interested in history. So we spent a lot of time, especially medieval history, spent a lot of time going around castles and things. And that that probably helped. And then Oh yes, then I then I wrote yeah, then I <laughs> Why was I so interested? So I'd done this fairly historical PhD about Timbuktu in the early 19th century and about travellers and poets and the meeting of the geographical imagination and the poetic imagination okay. and um, and so on. And that was really interesting about both African and European history. And then I came to think, well, can I turn this into a book? And, and was approaching an agent and somebody else said to me, oh, you shouldn't look as though you're a one-book person. You oh, know, okay. I, I had to have another idea yes. up my sleeve somehow. So yeah. I so I did some browsing in the library. <laughs> you make it sound very casual. A little bit of browsing <laughs> in the library. I was sort of following up various ideas. A lot of a lot of my PhD had involved a lot of reading of early nineteenth century periodicals like the Quarterly Review. And one of the things that, that they were very interested in was this idea of the, the cure, the medical cure. And somehow I ended up in this particular section of the London Library, which I was very lucky to have. I was very lucky to be given life membership of when I was 18, for various reasons, which has just been the, was the best present I've ever had in my entire life. Right. I've got so much value out of it. Yeah. yeah. And I came across this this book by Roy Porter about, quack, about quacks mm. and quackery in the 18th century, and this particular chapter on, on James Graham. And I remember reading it on the bus back coming back from, from central London, so desperate to get back and Google because I just couldn't believe that nobody had written the biography of this man yeah. before. And then when I mentioned it to this agent, he actually was much more interested in that than in my Timbuktu book, which he said he could have sold like that a few years ago. Oh, that's always the way, isn't it? <laughs> just the wrong moment. Oh, that's, well, it was good advice then to have that, uh, that backup plan. No, it was, it was good advice. And also I had this major problem that I, by then, had four very small children and I could not see how I could get to Timbuktu, which had been my plan, to do the kind of updating of the PhD that would make it into a, a book that was the right book for them, if you see what I mean. Yeah. So, and I think that is a big thing about the history and where why history became quite important in my writing, because I think it was a way of travelling without going anywhere. Oh, well, uh, yes, I was, gonna, I was going to ask you about that. I'll, I was, maybe I'll ask you now about... Because as well as obviously writing that requires a lot of historical research, you, play, you write really, really evocatively about, about place... And, you know, wildly different places. I mean, I was wondering how much of that do, do you feel you have to go to those places? I know with Mr. Peacock's possessions, you've written before about how you, you didn't actually go to the, how do you pronounce it, Kermadec? The Kermadec. Kermadec Islands. Islands until the book was finished. But in the case of, you know, the book set in Spain or France or Romney Marsh, I mean, that's not so exotic to get to. You know, do you feel you have to go and walk those places or are you able to? to just do it from accounts and so on. What, how does it go for you? It's a real mixture, but I do love all that psychogeography and wandering around places mm. um, and would love to be able to do more of it than I ever can. I, again, I was really lucky with a grant from the Arts Council for the Paris Commune book. Yeah. And, and it did, it really made a difference because, so for example, the, the whole thing about barricades in Paris 
and they're always tearing up the paving stones. And you can look at a, a London <laughs> paving stone, you think, how the hell do you make a barricade yes, out of yes, this? And then you see all the cobbles in Paris, mm. and it makes perfect sense. Or even even when it came to um, this idea of the petroleurs, who were the women who supposedly set fire to Paris at yes. the very end of the Paris Commune during Bloody Week by you know shoving petrol down these... No, now I'm going to forget the French name for it, but it's something like souplier. But these little ventilation mm. holes, which I suddenly noticed everywhere in Paris at my ankle height. Yeah. And I'd never spotted them before. Yeah. But equally, being in Paris and seeing how completely the history of the commune had been erased was really interesting. Most obviously from the big church in Montmartre, which, right. um, which literally covers up the place where the commune began. So with those, that, that really um, was really vital to your writing, that kind of walking around. But you managed to do it brilliantly, you know, Mr Peacock's Possessions, without being able to get there. So was that kind of just immersing yourself in... In everything. I'm, every, I'm yeah. a really obsessive researcher. And, <laughs> so, and I'll use sort of every single discipline. And, you know, I use, I use my my children's university accounts to access kind of <laughs> academic journals that I can't get hold of any other ways and so yeah. they've all been used to, I've got lucky I've got another one coming up so I've got another three years worth of, <laughs> of access to, <laughs> um, to everything I shouldn't probably say this out on that but um so I get them to send me journal articles and things but it was you know it was about it was ecology it was ornithology it was history it was sociology it was anthropology it's sort of everything and it was a really interesting place because it's 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 an absolutely unique island that yeah. has species that exist nowhere else in the world and it is obsessive and probably really stupid, but I can't bear the thought of getting things wrong. And so the numbers of people who read my book who will remotely care if I've got the right species in the right places mm-hmm. of plants or birds or Single whatever. figures. Single Simple. figures, yeah. definitely single yeah. figures. And yet I will spend hours making sure that the bird life is absolutely correct. And it was incredibly satisfying when I did, by a miracle, get to the Kermadex on this Royal Navy boat um, just at the very end of the process when I was literally correcting the proofs. Because... I saw all the species that I'd written about, or you know, the particular, and I was with ornithologists who had, whose whose articles I'd been reading. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that that was that was good, but it's it's a very kind of personal box ticking exercise. <laughs> <laughs> and how does that how does that fit in with the historical research? I mean, it seems to be very very labour intensive. Uh, the uh, so you know are you are you as presumably you're just equally obsessive about the historical detail. I mean, how do the two balance each other out when you're writing? Is it just like I'm going to go and research history first, then geography, or is it just all one thing? You know, no, it's a very it's a very to and fro process, and 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 often I'll go I'll discover in the process of writing that I need to know something else mm. in order to to get to that point. I think some of it goes back to my world service days where the rule, the BBC rule was you have to have two sources for okay. every, you know, piece yeah, of evidence yeah. or whatever. So you're putting that kind of rigour to so, it. So there is that kind of, yeah, there's definitely mm. that sort of rigour and I guess academic rigour as well mm. um, and a probably a rather dangerous element of perfectionism. But because I'm writing on fairly obscure subjects, 
it really does become a little bit crazy, not least, you know, because the number of people who would be able to check up on whatever I've done <laughs> is so small. So, for example, with, the, with Mr. Peacock's Possessions, a review came out in the Morning Star, which was not very favourable, and it was based entirely on the on the uncorrected proofs, which didn't have a sort of historical foreword at all. And hilariously, the criticism was that this was, you know, unrealistic and fantastical. Oh, really? <laughs> which, which, you know, only only showed up the reviewer's ignorance as that far as I was so concerned. so satisfying. Well, it sort of was and it wasn't. Oh, I'd be delighted by that. I'd be punching the air like, ha, well, I'd showed you. <laughs> but you're a better person. I know. What do you know about <laughs> blackbirding in the, in the South Pacific in the 19th century? They thought century. this was just an entirely thing you created out of your, you know, some nonsense you'd invented. Pretty much. Wow. Okay. Well, that's the, yeah, that's that's a great story. That was Lydia Sison in conversation with Catherine O'Flynn. You can find out more about Lydia on her website at www.lydiasison.com. And that concludes episode 379, which was recorded by Catherine O'Flynn and produced by Kona McPhee. Coming up in episode 380, in the concluding part of this interview, Lydia speaks with Catherine about fiction and ghostwriting, ethical motivations and the importance of luck. We hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. To subscribe to podcasts and to find out more about the work of the RLF, please visit our website at www.rlf.org.uk. Thanks for listening.